I'm pleased to introduce our favorite uh, political moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe is a fourth-generation California. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation and co-author of the forthcoming California Crack-Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. His previous book was The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Joe, Ma Joe Matthews is a columnist for the Daily Beast, and his work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. I have the uh, pleasure of, uh, of introducing our, um, our speaker tonight. It's uh, the Speaker of the Assembly, John A. Perez, who was elected in 2008 to represent the 46th Assembly District, which, I'm, which we're now in. Uh, it also includes uh, the cities of Maywood, Vernon, Huntington Park, communities of Boyle Heights, East L.A., uh, now unincorporated, perhaps soon its own city, parts of South L.A. In January, he was elected Speaker of the California Assembly, and he was uh, sworn in as the as Speaker on March 1st. John is, um, he's from LA, he's been El Sereno and Highland, went to Berkeley, um, and really comes out of the labor movement, where he's really one of the, the brightest minds, uh, both in the labor movement and just brightest political minds um, in California. He was political director, most recently for UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 324, uh, previously worked at the California Labor Federation. He's done all sorts of things, was on the board of the LACRA, board of the League of Conservation Voters, the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation, and, and all sorts of other things and issues he's been involved in. But I'd just like to bring out and, and, and welcome uh, the speaker. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I, I very much want this night to not actually be about you, but about all of us so it's Californians and talking about policy and how we can you know get out of the sort of fix we're in and but I, I did want to begin with with one question about you because it's something that that often is mentioned in profiles of you but you know when you read your bio you have to read about you know a lot of stuff about your work in for working people and in politics previously before you get down to the fifth paragraph where it says as the first openly gay person of color to be elected to state office in California when you think of that that sounds historic kind of a big deal you know why is it in the fifth paragraph i don't know i didn't write it <laughs> <laughs> is well i mean i guess the, the the question i would have then is how did you get here why are you here and and was was being gay incidental to the fact you're here? Was it a hindrance? Was it something, the experiences related to that drove you here? I don't know that it drove me here, but I'm also not sure that it's incidental. There were lots of things that got me involved in politics. I got involved in politics uh, starting when I was 14 years old. And the things that motivated me to get involved in politics were incredibly personal. My mother had worked at a carpet manufacturing factory and then was given a job, uh, an opportunity to retrain through the CETA program, became a receptionist at a community-based clinic, worked there her, uh, the rest of her life. By the time she retired, she uh, was running the place, only possible because of the training program hmm. that took her out of the factory and put her into that clinic. What's the name of that program? It was the Older Residence Medical Screening Program, but the training was CETA, which is a federal program. Is that program still around? It, still it is not in its current. It, 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 there are other job training programs that have supplanted it. 
My father worked as a sheet metal worker by day and a cook by night. Uh, around the time that I was 13 and 14 years old, two things happened that were really uh, personally impactful. The Reagan administration changed the definition of disability. My father had been injured in an industrial accident, uh, was left uh, in a condition where it took him some time to be able to regain the ability to walk, wow. uh, and was never able to return to work. But the Reagan administration redefined disability, threw him off disability. It took a year and a half for him to reprove his level of disability. At the same time, the Reagan administration was changing the way in which we did budgeting priorities. Included amongst that was significant cuts to social service agencies like the one that my mother ran. Well, she wasn't running it yet at that point. Uh, so these are two very personal ways in which politics impacted my life growing up. At the same time, as diverse as the city of Los Angeles was, there hadn't been a Latino on the LA City Council since Ed Roybal got elected to Congress in 1961. And there were a series of efforts to start working on voting rights and changing uh, the dynamics of district drawing. Uh, those things came together to politicize me, and I kind of never turned back. Hmm. How about in terms of running for office? You'd, you'd worked in politics for uh, a lot of years, and I mean, not behind the scenes is the wrong mm -hmm. word, but it's you know, you know, a person who got things done and wasn't the elected official. Right. Why did you end up running? Was that was that something that you always wanted to do, or is it a product of term limits sure. and the need for people? Well, uh, it's uh, look, so many of us that run for office now, it's a product of term limits because the seats wouldn't have necessarily otherwise been available. But it is something that I had an inkling that I wanted to do. Uh, I just never thought I'd be able to. Uh, growing up, as I told you, there are only a handful of Latinos in state elected office, uh, really in the capital, just a few. I remember when the first Latina ever got elected to the legislature, uh, Gloria Molina. Uh, when the first Latina ever got elected to the state senate, my friend Hilda Solis. Mm -hmm. And there had never been an openly gay person in state office until 1994, right? Mm -hmm. So the notion of me as a Latino and me in a, as a gay man being able to have the opportunity to actually serve in office uh, was not something that seemed real to me. So when I got elected uh, in 2008, not only was I the first openly gay person of color to get elected, uh, I was the first openly gay man ever to get elected from Southern California hmm. to the legislature, and the only person, only openly gay person ever to get elected in a district that hadn't demonstrated a pattern of voting in favor of gay rights. My district voted against, prop, voted for Prop 22 in 2000, and in 2008, as they voted for me by 86%, mm -hmm. they also voted to prevent me from being able to be married in voting to approve Prop 8 by 52 or 54%. Did your sexuality come up in the campaign? Oh yeah, of course it did. Yeah. Well, look, first of all, uh, even, if it, even if nobody else made it an issue, the newspapers did. Right. The moment I declared my candidacy, that was the, that was the one sentence that was in every article uh, in English language and Spanish language press. Same thing for, for uh, my election to speaker. Uh, well, and it, it may, may very well be the reason why I was the first speaker in 10 years that the Republican Party refused to put up a procedural vote for. Because there is the, the tradition of, of once the, the majority party is selected Correct. a speaker, everyone falls in line. That Correct. is a tradition not Correct. followed in this in your case. Correct. Let me let me um, get into policy and also talk a little bit jumping from your your maybe your work in the labor movement is relevant to this, but you know, by far the most important question on people's minds is is the state of our economy. We have twelve and a half percent unemployment. Twelve point eight percent. Twelve point eight, excuse me. And and uh, I mean but 
you know, we're in a global, it's a global economy, it's a very, you know, globally oriented state. Um, really, can the state do that it's not doing now to, to bring back the economy, and particularly to stimulate job growth? There's, there, there are a lot of things. Let's, let's put it in a little bit of context. One, we've got a 12.8% rate of unemployment, highest that we've had in generations. Uh, in some parts of the state, in the Central Valley in particular, it's over 40% where you have the confluence of a multi-year global economic meltdown, a mortgage meltdown that is more pronounced in uh, exurban and rural areas of the state, and a multi-year drought. Those things combining have created a rate of unemployment of about 40% in some parts of the Central Valley. Um, there are many things that we can do that are different, and we have to also understand that while this is a global problem, California has the third highest rate of unemployment of any state in the country. So it is a more pronounced problem here than it is in other places. That's why I've said that our number one focus this year has to be on job creation. In the couple of months that we've, since I've been speaker, we've done a couple of things. One, we've restructured the way in which we use the gas tax. Without increasing the purchase price of gasoline or diesel, we were able to repurpose the amount of money that was uh, drawn from that tax, set aside $400 million for transportation-related construction to move those jobs forward, $350 million for transit-related operations so that the bus service and the train service would still go on so that it would be available to take people to work and, more importantly, available to take people to look for work. We did a tax credit for new home buyers to help stabilize uh, the housing market, 10% on purchasers of new homes and 10% for any first-time home buyer regardless of whether it was a new home or a pre-existing home. And then we did something else that people didn't think we'd be able to do. California is one of only three states in the country that does nothing to incentivize manufacturing. So we came up with a, uh, an incentive to, do, to purchase manufacturing equipment for green products. So for the next 10 years, any manufacturing equipment purchased in California for California-based production of green products will uh, be free of sales tax. Now, what's the value of that? Yeah. Some would say, is, is, aren't we losing money by doing that? Right. No, it's about incentivizing that which wouldn't happen naturally. California is at the cutting edge of the R&D for green tech, biotech, nanotech. But most of the jobs in actually manufacturing the products that result from that R&D are being done in other states and in other countries. So this is a way to attract the manufacturing that otherwise would likely go to other states and other countries. We have a uh, solar, panel, uh, solar panel manufacturer in San Jose that was so effective at creating a product that was cost effective that they pre-sold the next three years of production based on the current footprint. They were getting ready to open up a new facility and were debating places in which to do it. This tax, allow, tax break allowed them to guarantee the expansion here in California. Today I was in Orange County uh, with a bunch of high-tech uh, and biotech companies. There, there are things that we can do along that area. Here's the most dangerous part. Right now our rules around economic development are completely disjointed. I've got a bill that creates a cabinet-level post for economic development that seeks to tie together all the different state agencies that in some ways impact economic development but are doing it in a disjointed manner. But here's a notion that I kicked around 10 years ago with the head of the LA Economic Development Corporation, so it came from a business leader on one hand, a labor leader on the other hand. You take 
the, uh, the rea- you have to understand the context. Cities are disproportionately uh, dependent on sales tax mm-hmm. and transient occupancy tax to fund city services. Right, because the rest so, of it, it's the rest you guys of, in right. Sacramento. Yeah. So on a given parcel of land, there is a net benefit if they use it for retail sales tax generation or for hotel space. It's about a push if they're doing uh, uh, manufacturing, and it's a net loss if they're doing housing in most cases. Right. So our economic uh, development tools are limited really to, uh, to sales tax generators and transient occupancy tax generators. One of the ideas we've been kicking around is take a baseline study of the uh, income tax generated within a city and then give cities back a portion of the growth of their income tax so that you capture an economic upside for the cities to attract high-tech, biotech, nanotech, other high-quality jobs that we're disproportionately losing. How do, you, how do you, do you think you can get that done? I mean, everyone talks about the power of the sales tax cities. I mean, you go over where the 605 is, meets the 105 and they've got the, the interchange name for the lobbyist to, right, to it, work for them. Right, but, but, but when you are in crisis, yeah. as you are now, and you have had to go in and I was going to say decimate services, but decimate doesn't fully capture, because right. decimate says you kill one in 10. And we have done more than 10% cuts. We have done more than decimate services. Uh, when you are in the kind of crisis that we're in, it challenges you to think about doing things differently so that you don't completely continue to recycle through the same sets of challenges. And so I've been talking to business leaders who love the idea. I've been talking to labor leaders who love the idea. The hard part is going to be the cities. And it is amazing the power of the lobbyists representing cities throughout the state. But, uh, but it's, 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 it's one of the things that we're going to try to do. We're not going to get it done this year, but it's part of a longer-term approach we want to engage in. When you talk about it makes a lot of sense to do that kind of realignment. Um, you talk about the you know, manufacturing tax credits and green jobs. But, you know, what is the... Is there, or you know, what's going to be the? Is there a, a great middle class engine? I mean, I think of my my grandmother. Uh, you know, came when she was very little from Oklahoma, had a mid, pretty bad, you know, high school education, lived in a not a nice part of Hawthorne, um, but because she learned how to use a soldering iron and found assembly line work at you know an aviation aerospace plant, you know, ended up in the middle class, living in a five hundred thousand dollar home in Anaheim. Where is that? going to be for this next generation. But see, that's exactly what I'm saying, is we need to have the tools for cities to be able to attract those jobs. Currently, the tools that they have only work at attracting retail and uh, hospitality jobs. They don't really have a full complement of tools to do this other stuff, not in an incentivized way. Mm -hmm. What, What we have really is the fiscalization of land use as it relates to economic development. And so our ability to figure out innovative ways to attract High-tech, biotech, nanotech is huge. Los Angeles is still the number one manufacturing city in the country. The difference is we used to do heavy manufacture and light manufacture. Now we're almost left with only light manufacture, which pays the least, has the least ongoing sustainable uh, uh, revenue stream for for its workers. You take the example of Tesla. Tesla is looking to come into Downey. The electric car company. The electric car company. Um, there's a huge opportunity for us to create middle-class jobs there. One of the other issues that got me involved in politics when I was a teenager was the fight over a proposed prison in East L.A. And it was really at the coming together points of East L.A. and downtown L.A. It was the old Crown Coach facility where they used to build buses. And so the idea was to put a prison there. Many of us were opposed to it. We fought it. But for 20 years, 
that parcel of land laid fallow. And now, all these years later, it is the green corridor being proposed by the city, by the redevelopment agency, and by the state to attract other high-quality green, green, green jobs and good quality manufacturing jobs. There's a potential to do the manufacture of the light rail cars for our mass transit system. There's also the potential to do manufacturing maintenance uh, for the, the high-speed rail uh, as it moves forward. And, and you think, so there, and you think there, that, that kind of stuff creates enough scale to absolutely. really be an engine? We're talking significant scale. Wow. Okay. Well, um, our time is limited, and I want to shift gears to another, um, to another hot-button topic, which is health care. Um, you, you may have heard we had this, uh, some, some interesting federal legislation in this area, and, and now um, states have to implement. Some states are choosing to do very little to implement. Um, uh, California, by some measures, is sort of responsible for, you know, maybe one-fifth of the health care implementation when you talk about people. And um, given that we've got a lame-duck governor and you're sort of new to the speakership and, and may be there for a while, uh, depending on your caucus One does, you may be the, the single elected official who has the most responsibility for that implementation. So what should our approach be and what things worry you most about the implementation? Look, our approach should be an aggressive approach and creating the framework to implement uh, the national health care reform on an expedited basis. Um, we need enabling state legislation to take advantage of the protections from pre-existing conditions, the extension of coverage for dependents to the age of 26 instead of uh, 21 and 23, depending on their, 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 their school status. We need um, to do the things necessary to create the networks and the exchanges so that you could actually have clear information about different rating levels of care, both in the HMO and the PPO model, that you can do apples and apples comparisons about what, uh, what you're paying based on threshold levels of care. Um, there, there are huge sets of laws that need to be conformed, federal and state. Uh, I actually authored AB 1602, uh, and AB 1602 is the vehicle by which we will do the conformity. Now, part of the challenge is the federal bill was a 2,500-page bill that most people still don't know all the details of, and as the feds are trying to figure out their regulation, we need to be in ongoing communication so that our legislative changes mirror that which is anticipated in the regs. So on Sunday, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Steinberg and I are flying to D.C. We're going to be meeting with the White House. We're going to be meeting with uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services and people in her shop. We're going to be meeting with congressional leaders to figure out all the pieces that we need to begin putting together to do implementation. But this is going to be a multi-month process of figuring out the elements of what we need to incorporate into California legislation. Are you confident you're going to get legislation? I saw the governor came out yesterday and said, we're going to implement this. And as you and I both know, he never changes his mind. Well, first of all, I'm happy that, I'm happy that he now says we're going to implement it because a couple of months ago he said it was a bad thing. So, you know, happy to have him now realize that it's a good thing. Um, and hope that, that Arnold number two is the one we keep on this issue. Uh, I'd like Arnold number one on some other issues. Um, <laughs> But, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that, we get, that, that we get to get there. There are other issues with respect to health care and health care yeah. delivery. I mean, one of the other issues is as our population demographics shift, as baby boomers continue to age, we have different sets of pressure on our health care, uh, which is going to necessitate an increase in nurses and other allied health professionals. We are lagging 
with respect to training people for those jobs. I've got another piece of legislation. I think it's 2385. Don't hold me to the okay. number. Uh, but it is a bill that expedites training uh, for ancillary healthcare professionals, uh, allied healthcare professionals, starting with RNs and going down to all the other areas where we have a dearth of, uh, of trained individuals. It's based on a model that I saw in Massachusetts, tweaked in combination with the uh, Chancellor's Office of the Community College System. Do we, should we be worried, I mean, part of this is an expansion of Medicaid, and you know, famously, California does very poorly in the Medicaid funding formulas, because even though we have a huge number of poor folks, we also have a very high number of rich people, and that sort of skews the income data, and we don't get a <coughs> higher reimbursement as a lot of states. Are you worried about sort of long-term budget problems from the expansion of Medicaid, given our, our already considerable budget problems? That, that's not where the area of concern is. I mean, part of it isn't that the wealthier folks change the formula and therefore no. hurt the poorer folks in terms of the formula. The real problem is what we use generally is a national model for deciding what levels of poverty to include, and that the cost of living in California is so much more expensive that you have huge additional populations of uninsured who are caught in the middle. They don't qualify for uh, the public benefit programs, and they can't afford what's already out there in the open marketplace. And that's why the exchanges and the expanded pools are so important. You take, for example, my youngest sister, uh, physical therapist by training, worked in the hospital setting for two decades, um, decided that she wanted to leave that setting, start a small business for herself. She did, she let her COBRA expire, and then got diagnosed with a chronic disease mm. and couldn't buy any health care on the open market. Um, and she stayed uninsured until she came to tell me. Huh. And luckily, I was able to unionize her company and uh, get her health care because I unionized her employees. Huh. Um, so that was, that, that, that was the day she was happy that her brother came and unionized her employees. Um, <laughs> I can't do that anymore. Uh, but there are a lot of other people in that, that circumstance and that's why you need to have these purchasing pools. And that's why you need to be, have, be able to have pools that are large enough to absorb people that are higher risk and also large enough to keep the aggregate purchase price low. In talking about covering the uninsured, be, I, I would say because of the politics of immigration being what they are nationwide, um, we're going to still be left with a lot of un, people who aren't covered by this legislation, maybe three million. You know, more than that, I mean, yeah. nationwide, the way the legislation was written, it does not cover the undocumented, regardless of any other considerations. So in rough numbers, we're talking about 12 to, right. 12 to 13 nationwide, million nationwide. And 3 million I met here in California. Yeah. Um, what, what can we do there? I mean, that's obviously a huge burden on, on you know, we, we, we need those folks to be healthy. They're here. It's a huge burden on, on, on public systems, I mean, particularly in the city we're, we're, we're in. What, what do we do? It, it, it is a huge burden. I mean, you have folks in that circumstance um, who are avoiding health care because they don't have access. You also have them only uh, tending to, 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 to go get access when they're in a truly emergent situation, which is the problem we see for so many uninsured generally like, right now. And so we have the most expensive, least effective way of treating people, waiting till they get to a position where they're in a truly emergent condition, where the emergency rooms have to take them in and treat them. The answer in my mind is very simple. We need to get the focus now to be on a national immigration reform approach. Uh, it makes no sense 
for us to know that we have 12 to 13 to 14 million people here without documentation and not do something about it. There have been several different proposals that allow for a pathway to citizenship over time, that allow to normalize people's status, that allow for us, quite frankly, to know who's actually here. Um, and I think that it's essential that we immediately move forward on this. The despicable legislation that was just passed in, uh, in Arizona is, uh, is one of the greatest examples of people crying out for federal attention. They obviously did it in a way that I think is immoral and unconstitutional, uh, but all the more reason for the federal government to step in and for us to work on a systematic and inclusive immigration reform package. Do you think if that Arizona law makes it more likely as a political thinker that we actually get immigration I reform? hope it makes us more likely. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of ugliness uh, as we try to figure out how the courts and others respond to Arizona. Um, to jump to, to one more topic, um, I, I introduced you by saying you're one of the, the, the smartest political thinkers in the state, and and and, and I didn't uh, even have to pay you for that. that I know, right. I know, I know. But but you know, but I have to say, when I, I was looking at, um, um, but then you know, but then, I, but I I'm you're doubting second, that. I'm doubting second, second thoughts, thoughts. <laughs> and I, here's why I'm having second thoughts. Um, you know, you get into maybe it's just you get become speaker and things go to your head, but. I mean, everyone knows that, that budget and, and, and political reform are slam-bam loser, and yet, you know, you're, you, know, you and Senator Steinberg, the, the Senate leader, and California Ford are jumping on all this, you know, budget, difficult budget reforms, uh, going to a simple majority vote for passing a budget, um, doing some, some things for, to fees that, that people aren't happy with. You know, a lot of, that's, that's really hard stuff. You're likely to fail. Why are you doing that, and, and what is... And what is, you know, what do you think you can really get there? Well, first of all, I think you're doing it, uh, or we're doing it, because it's too important to ignore. We have a couple of structural problems in California. Um, one of them is term limits. And the fact that we have term limited legislators seriously impacts not only the quality of legislation that gets passed, but the relationships that exist between different people. Now, California is one of only three states that requires a supermajority to pass a budget. It's California, Arkansas, and Rhode Island. Uh, I don't know about you, but Arkansas and Rhode Island do not remind me of you know, states that are as large, as complex, or as globally important as California is. We're the only state that requires a bipartisan supermajority. Arkansas and Rhode Island have single party rule that exceeds their supermajority threshold. We're the only state that has a supermajority requirement and then gives the governor a line item veto. Now, some people would have you think that by having a supermajority threshold that it would cause us to get to consensus. It's not what happens. It causes us to get to gridlock. It allows for the minority party to leverage for budgetary actions that have nothing to do with fiscal policy. They it, take hostages. It create, they absolutely take hostages. Yeah. And it gets to be a situation where there's leveraging for policy changes that would never pass muster on policy grounds. Now, what does that mean for you? It means we pass the budget late on a regular basis because of the extraction. It means we make stupid decisions to get somebody else's vote. The most blatant example was last year. In February, we had to close a $42 billion budget hole. By June, we had a new $20 to $22 billion budget hole. 
So at the end of June, the assembly passed by unanimous vote a package of $3.5 billion worth of savings. Savings that would have evaporated July 1. We passed them, sent them over to the Senate. The governor said he didn't want to do a piecemeal approach. He convinced enough Republicans in the Senate not to vote for this package. July 1st, 12.01 a.m., $3.5 billion of solutions evaporate. We then began having to issue IOUs. So businesses and individuals throughout the state started receiving IOUs instead of checks. Our bond rating went down. The, the cost of financing government went up $25 million a day for every day from that day until the day that we got the two-thirds vote. The net cost of that delay was $475 million. That was roughly a half a billion dollars of additional cuts that we had to make in the budget last year only because of the delay in getting from having a nearly two-thirds vote to having a two-thirds vote. I believe that we need to return to simple majority. I believe it's about democracy. I think it's about transparency. I think it's about accountability. You know who voted for what and why they voted for it, and you hold them accountable. So I've called for a simple majority vote. California Forward has it as a cornerstone. I'm ready to go because the other cornerstones that they have are not all things that I love, but as a package, I think they're sensible. Let me give you a couple of examples. One says that when you have a one-time increase in state revenues, you use that one-time increase to pay for one-time expenditures. You don't create ongoing obligations based on a singular increase in revenues. Pretty good, sensible idea. You use it to pay down debt. You use it to invest in infrastructure. You do it to use it to do capital acquisitions, things that are not ongoing obligations. Uh, another simple concept. If you have a new program that costs $25 million or more, identify where you're getting the $25 million from so that you know you have the ongoing revenues to pay for it. These are elements of the reform that in toto, I think, are beneficial. There's things in it, too, that say, if you don't pass the budget on time, the legislature forfeits their pay. Not in love with that idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but I'm willing to take it as part of an overall package, hmm. right? Willing to take it as part of an overall package. Because if you give us the tools uh, to hold ourselves accountable on one-time revenues, to hold ourselves accountable on finding revenue streams to match up with new expenditures, and you give us a simple majority budget, we should get it passed on time. And we should be expected to get it passed on time. And we should be expected to make it make sense. Um, so we're moving forward. That requires a two-thirds vote of both houses of the legislature to put it on the ballot. I'm working very hard to get there. We've done uh, six hearings already on these. Uh, we'll take it to the floor. If we can get the two-thirds vote, it'll be on the ballot in November. If we don't, there's a separate standalone effort to go to simple majority vote. None of this changes the way in which taxes or fees are passed. Taxes still require a two-thirds vote because the greatest impediment to passing simple majority for a budget is people thinking that it expedites or uh, makes it easier to increase their taxes. It doesn't. Taxes still will require a two-thirds vote. Let me ask you to, to, um, to uh, address two objections to that, one from the left, one from the right. First one from the left, you know, why, why, why not do taxes too? Why, and why put as part of this because, fees behind because, it? But, because they, but, they'll, just, they'll, they'll, make, they'll blame Democrats for the, the cuts in the budget. You'll be majority accountable. But they can still starve you of the taxes you need to fund what it is you want to fund. 
Well, two, two, two answers. One, because I'm not as dumb as your first question anticipated that I was. <laughs> and two, and two, because I don't believe in making the perfect the enemy of the good, right? We don't get to get perfect solutions. Okay. I have yet to have a bill yeah. out in the form in which I introduced it. They go through amendments. And it's all about a process of how far in the direction that I want to go in, can I get enough people to go along with me to actually have it passed sure. and signed into law. If we included taxes as well, this would be a non-starter. We wouldn't have any other benefit. Second, if you look at the four, last 14 times in which we had huge budgetary challenges, we only raised taxes in one of those 14. So it's, the taxes have only been one out of 14 of the solutions. Okay. So why wouldn't I want to have something that helps me improve the situation in those other 13 circumstances? I believe that in last year's package, where we got the votes to do mm -hmm. the taxes, we would have still been able to get those votes to do those taxes. This doesn't make it harder to raise taxes, it just doesn't make it easier to raise taxes. And still, even without getting new, new, new revenues, if we had simple majority vote for budget, our budgetary decisions would be based on fiscal policy, not based on ideological policy. A couple of examples. Proposal last year to move away from in-home supportive services for people with serious disabilities and illnesses. For every dollar we save by moving away from in-home supportive services, we transfer that person into nursing homes. Costs us $7 to provide the nursing home services. So why would you save a dollar here only to cost yourself $7 here? Because it's ideological, not fiscal. Uh, there was another proposal to save money by cutting back on family planning services. Some people are morally or ideologically opposed to the notion of family planning. For every dollar we save by not providing family planning, we leave nine federal matching dollars on the table. When you have a state in economic crisis, why would you want to draw down less federal money instead of more? So then it's not just about not drawing down those nine matching federal dollars. What are you doing to those service providers that had been counting on all 10 of those dollars? You're devastating them. And what we've seen is service providers that also did family planning shutting down and cutting back other services to the degree that they had to take hits in their family planning money. There are a whole set of irrational budgetary actions that have been taken not based on fiscal consideration, but based on ideological interests only to get to the two-thirds vote. And then the objection on the right, of course, is that you know, this will just make it easy for those union guys, uh, you know, who are running the legislature to spend more, essentially. And, and, you know, and the folks on the right seem very strongly against even, even th this very rational That's thing. That's actually not true. The, go the guys on the far right actually kind of like it. The McClintock. Tom, Tom McClintock, you know, a guy who would never vote for a budget, actually thinks this is right. He thinks, let us be held responsible for the, account of, for, 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 for the budget. He's never seen a budget he liked. Hmm. Um, so he felt, let us, you know, let us be, uh, be held accountable for it. I think he's right. One of the core tenets of democracy is this notion of understanding who to hold accountable. And actually, if you go back to the founders and you read uh, the writings of the founders, you read the Federalist Papers, and you talk about the tyrannies, one of the enumerated tyrannies in the uh, Federalist Papers was the tyranny of the minority, the ability of a minority to hold out and subvert the will of the majority. That is being expressed 
in tremendous ways in the way in which we do budgeting. Let me ask about a type of reform that isn't, I don't think is part of the package, so correct me if I'm wrong, but election reform. Do we need to change the way we elect members of the state legislature? And let me put you on the spot here with a statistic. There were 28 new members of the assembly elected in 2008. Um, 15 of those folks um, owed their election to having won the primary votes of 10% of le or less of the registered voters in a district that is not competitive in the general election. And the person who got the fewest votes, you, um, just under 5,000, um, you know, and you're now the Speaker of the Assembly. Yeah, I got um, 5,000 votes, then I got the 51 necessary to become Speaker. I'm just more efficient in using votes. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, do we, do we need, I mean, you know, there's a top two primary on the ballot. I mean, what, so, what so do we need to change here? Okay. If you assume for a moment that the purpose of the top two primary is to get more people engaged in the process, let me tell you, that won't work in my district. The reason that so few people vote in my district is one, I have the lowest threshold of people that are eligible to vote in my district. My district is disproportionately young and disproportionately immigrant and disproportionately homeless. I have the poorest district in the state of California, mm. highest proportion of homeless people in the state of California, and the highest proportion of immigrants. So I'm always going to have lower numbers than any other district. Um, so then what's the challenge of actually engaging people in the process and trying to get them out there? I had, by, by the time election day rolled around, I had a very easy election. Um, I had convinced my primary opponents to stand down. Their names were still on the ballot, but they had agreed not to campaign against me. And I did something that everybody told me I was crazy about. I walked precincts every weekend. I phone banked three nights a week. I knocked on the doors. I went to every community meeting. I did everything I would do in a competitive race because I wanted to give the voters in my district a chance to confront me on the issues they thought were important, hold me accountable for what they wanted to see me deliver, and really establish a connection be between me and them so that they understood the impact of what government can have. Um, so I spent a lot of money to get very few elected very few votes, um, you change it to open primary, doesn't make a difference. Because the top two voters in my district are always going to be Democrats. The top two are always going to be Democrats. So instead what you're saying is the Republicans in my district never get a chance to have a Republican vote, the vote, Republican to get vote for. Mm -hmm. The Greens in my district are never going to get a chance to vote for a, re a Green or a Peace and Freedom or anything else. I think this is a horrible way to construct an, uh, a an effort to get more people in the process. If you really want an open primary, mm -hmm. you know how you do it? Yeah. You require everybody to, as a candidate to dis disclose their party, which this mm -hmm. doesn't. Yeah. And then you let the voters show up on election day and say, I want to vote in the Democratic primary, or I want to vote in the Republican primary, or I want to vote in the Green primary. Give them all the options on, pr on primary day. Mm -hmm. And then in November, they've got the top vote getter from each of those parties. So they have two chances both in the primary and the general, to choose from amongst all the candidates. Hmm. That's the way you increase uh, choice, uh, not through what's being proposed as a backroom deal that only benefited Arnold Schwarzenegger and Abel Maldonado. Wow. Another question in this area of reform, um, one of the, uh, the objections that you often hear about why things don't work better is, oh, the, you know, the politicians are... 
uh, you know, it's, it's campaign finance. It's, you know, it's who's funding the campaigns. I mean, one of the jobs I'm always told of the speaker um, is you got to be a good fundraiser. Um, it is one of those jobs. So that's one objection. But then, you know, I, 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 when I was asking, I was asking people in different settings for suggestions for questions, and a, and a question on this topic from the other side came from one W. Brown of San Francisco, California. <laughs> and, um, and W. Brown asked me to suggest it asking it's you. It's just W. Brown, not W. L. Brown? Yeah, it could be that. W. L. Brown J? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and W. Brown suggested that um, a, a great feeling of pity for people who are currently the Speaker of the Assembly because in an, an earlier Just era, in, in an early era, earlier era, a Speaker of the Assembly had a lot of power, really controlled the purse strings, the campaign money of individual members, and could really force people to, on big tough votes, to actually get things done and do it. And you know, now everyone's got a little bit more control over their purse strings. So, reckon with those two different, you know, objections. Do we have? Do we have not enough? campaign finance reform or too much of it? How about we have the wrong sets of it? Okay. Um, there are some who believe that the best way to do this is through public financing and that every candidate who qualifies and you get to figure out what the criteria are for qualification. It may be that you've got 500 of your neighbors signing a, a petition for you and each of them writing a check for $5 to demonstrate some low-level uh, financial commitment to you that each candidate that, that, that qualifies under whatever that standard is gets an X amount of money for their race and it's publicly financed and anybody they're running against has the exact set, same set of resources. And superficially that sounds like a great idea. But let's take that and apply that to the governor's race. Let's assume that Jerry Brown and uh, Meg Whitman and Steve Poisner all met the threshold. And that we had, and I think in the last proposal like this, the set aside was something like five million, uh, given each of them five million to run their campaign, because then they'd all be on the same playing field, and they'd be able to p compete based on their ideas. Only one problem: Buckley versus Vallejo, a federal Supreme, Supreme Court case that said that if you have money, your money is equal to speech, yeah. and so that we cannot limit any of the money you use on behalf of your own campaign at all. So what you would have is in this case, Jerry Brown with his five million and Whitman with her five million and Poisoner with his five million, plus whatever each of them could do individually. And I think it would move us, move us even further down the line of plutocracy. And I really do think that we're appro approaching a plutocratic system of electing people to major office. Do you have to spend a lot of time with plutocrats in your job? Raising I do money? have to, I, I, I well. <laughs> I don't raise my money from the plutocrats, but I have to serve with some plutocrats. Uh, excellent, excellent. Let, let me, uh, uh, one, one, uh, one other question sort of came up, bubbled up, is, is, is the state of infrastructure. Um, you know, you talked about moving some money into to, to public transit and transportation. Um, but, you know, we're in this catch-22. We've got an infrastructure that needs fixing. It would help us from a jobs perspective to do it, but we don't have a lot of money. What should people, you know, expect? What's, what's really doable in, in that area for this state? Look, we have an infrastructure bond that we haven't been able to move all the money out of. And one of the reasons that we haven't been able to move all the money based on the bonds that have already been approved is because of the ratings of our bonds. The lower your bond is rating, uh, lower your bond is rated, the less likely you are to be able to move it in the open market. Because if I'm purchasing commercial paper, if I'm pur purchasing public paper, 
uh, from any one of several states, I get the same return uh, from states in same categories. And so I take a greater risk buying California paper than I would buying paper from another state. That's why the budget reform pieces actually impact our bond rating and make it easier for us to move the infrastructure money that we've already uh, created bond, uh, bond obligations for. Second thing is, again, being smart about using the resource that we do have, where we can leverage an investment of both public and private money, mm -hmm. uh, so that there's uh, some, some cooperation there, great mm -hmm. stuff. Um, we also have to be smart about where we do general obligation bonds versus where we do revenue bonds, so that there can be a participation in there for others that have an interest in, 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 in moving that forward. But we're never going to be able to do what the investment. Mean? What does that mean? That's really important. I mean, a bit smarter about general, you know, those often that can sound like gobbledygook to people. But what, what do you mean by that? I mean, general obligation bond is money that comes out of the general fund, right? It competes with all the other programs. With a revenue bond, you've got some dedicated Correct. revenue. What, what do you mean Correct. when you say so that? So let, let, let me take an example. In 2008, I would venture to say that the majority of people in this room voted for the Children's Hospital Bond Act. Raise your hand if you did. It was the one where it said, improve healthcare outcomes for kids, do better research, improve seismic safety without increasing one penny of taxes. Come on, admit it. A lot more of you than that. It passed by 64%. Passed by 64%. Uh, it was the number one uh, issue on the ballot. It even beat elbow rooms for duckies and bunnies in slaughterhouses. Um, I mean, it did really well. Um, now, this was this great idea that everybody loved. What it didn't tell you is, but in order to pay for it, we're gonna take the money out of the general fund, and we don't have any money in the general fund, so we're therefore gonna have to cut services a commensurate amount. This is one of our great challenges. We as voters, and it's weird for me to say it now as an elected official, uh, so I don't mean to be overly accusatory because I'm a voter too. But we as voters approve a lot of initiatives without actually talking about the long-term economic impact of them. Uh, we constrain the hands of the legislature to be able to make fiscal decisions. Uh, in bad years, we're stuck spending whatever was mandated by the initiative. And we never have a question about what are we trading off in order to do this. That's why one of the other reforms that we did was we said, if by initiative you want to expend more than $25 million, mm -hmm. you need to identify where you're getting that money from, and if you're offsetting other services, if you're cutting other services in order to get the money, where's it coming from? Um, that's, that's a huge problem for us. On that, on that lack of discretion, a, 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 a wiseacre writer who you're now talking to recently suggested that that state legislators with all the different rules and restrictions that, that you have on you, you guys are you know, complaining about use a waste of time. You guys are basically the cleanup crew and the scapegoats for these big you know, kind of constitutional messes that voters have dumped in your laps. Is that, is that wrong? There's some, uh, there's some significant truth to that. I mean, the, 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 the amount of control that we have over budgetary decisions is contracted every year based on the decisions that voters make in the initiative process. And so we're left tinkering at the edges. So when you have to make cuts, what you have to understand is the budget is in all these silos that have been pre-protected to different degrees. So we know, for example, that 40% of the general fund 
has to go through K-14 education. So K-12 plus community colleges, 40%. You can't go below that, 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 that level in any meaningful way. We know that X amount is guaranteed towards higher ed. We know that another portion is guaranteed towards the prisons. Now this is a funny one in terms of the way it's guaranteed. It's not guaranteed because we say we'd like the prisons to be X percentage of the budget. It's, 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 it's designated by the choices we make by doing things like three strikes and a variety of other uh, mandated levels of incarceration uh, which take away any judicial discretion about figuring out the best way uh, to incarcerate and to evaluate uh, people post-incarceration. That's why we're finally in a situation where in this last year, we spent more state money for prisoners than we did for college students in California. Mm -hmm. First time ever. With that happy thought, let's turn this to uh, questions. Thank you. Toby Draggart, um, I'd like to talk a little more about public financing because there's a misconception that um, all of it being mandated would uh, violate the Buckley-Vallejo. Um, Proposition 15, which is on the June ballot, would not violate because it's um, an optional program. It would also lift the ban on um, uh, public financing that's currently in California. So um, could you possibly uh, support it and endorse it under those circumstances? Um, you're right that it is structured differently. Um, I'm still not in love with the way in which it's structured. Uh, I'll take another look at it. Uh, I think that the notion of just holding the lobbyist community accountable for paying for it is not the greatest notion. I think if we want to be committed to the notion of public financing, that should mean that each of us are willing to vote to put a little of our money in. Um, not just pick somebody who we don't like and say, you pay for it. Stephanie Stone. Mr. Speaker, you've been talking about different communities within the state of California. One community that's close to my heart are the veterans. We have more vets in our, in our state than in any other state and more in this county in Los Angeles. What's the state of California doing in order to prepare for the vets that are coming from this war and those that we have already? I know we have huge, huge uh, challenges and we probably have uh, the most inefficient department of veterans affairs that you can imagine. Um, we spend a very respectable amount per vet, but we don't get a whole lot for what we spend. Um, and this is one of the areas where I think we really need to go and do some serious work around accountability. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about is the fact that when I became speaker, I uh, announced that I was going to appoint two Republicans to be committee chairs. Traditionally, the majority party has all the committee chairs. I announced that there were going to be two Republican committee chairs. One of them is Colonel uh, Paul Cook, uh, who I appointed to be the chair of the Veter Veterans Affairs Committee. Uh, decorated uh, Marine, Vietnam era, came back, became a community college uh, professor, um, is an incredibly thoughtful guy. And so he and I are actually going to spend some time here in Los Angeles in Skid Row and in L.A. County Jail uh, looking at the circumstances of vets li li living on the streets and vets who are getting caught up in the criminal justice system. The other issue is the population of vets that are coming home is a very different population than we've experienced before. Because of technology and because of changes in the way we, we fight, we're having more vets coming home with traumatic brain injury than ever before, which creates whole new sets of, uh, of challenges for us. And sadly, what we also see 
is vets coming home with serious mental health issues and often being thrown out of the military um, and losing their veterans' benefits because somebody decided to, to, to characterize their condition differently than it is. We have a tremendous number of vets coming home with post-traumatic stress um, uh, disorder. And I, I paused there at the end before I said disorder because we're trying to change what we call it. Um, there is some evidence that calling it post-traumatic stress disorder is actually an impediment to get those vets from, keep, from getting treatment. And that if we recharacterize it as post-traumatic stress injury, that there would be a greater willingness to come in and to get treatment. Because we so stigmatize uh, mental health in general. But to tell somebody who came back after fighting for their country, uh, you have a disorder, you need to go get treated, is very different than saying, you sustained an injury and we want to give you help. And so that's one of the other areas that we're looking at doing some realignment. Uh, there have been huge issues with respect to inefficiencies and in some cases outright fraud in veterans' homes uh, that, that we're looking at focusing on. So both our Veterans Affairs Committee and our Accountability and Administrative Review Committee are looking at some of those areas as well. Um, we have a long way to go, but uh, Colonel Cook and I have really been uh, trying to figure out how we can move in that direction. Hi, my name is Dennis Paul. I'm the former development officer for cultural affairs in New York City. Uh, I birthed that office as a uh, proud CETA worker when New York City was going bankrupt. I worked for Beam and Koch administrations. Uh, some of the recent activity here in the state and particularly locally here in cultural affairs has sort of been benighted. As a public part of the sector, we pay back to the coffers 12x on every public dollar that gets spent. Uh, the creative class is becoming very popular with mayors around the country, but California's recent efforts seem to be going in the wrong direction. I understand the needs are really great in many areas, but we're looking at a multiplier effect that no other sector can deliver. Uh, question would be, can, can we, we have creative pockets here that are quite impressive, and uh, the state has a unique opportunity, and yet you seem to be not addressing that. If uh, Michael Alexander here can give me a hand. Uh, Michael, there's a bill that we've just had up um, that I know Theater West and others were engaged in. Uh, Terrence, if, 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 you, if you could. I, I don't remember the number of the bill. AB 1777. And it's a bill that helps us actually look uh, at the arts, in particular theater, as a job creator, as we're talking about job creation as one of our, of, of our, of our core uh, missions going forward. Uh, but the arts are something else. Not only do we as the state underinvest in the arts, Michael can tell you that LA City and LA County are amongst the lowest in the state in terms of our investment. I'm picking on him because he runs Grand Performances Next Door uh, that does tremendous jobs of, uh, of bringing in a wide variety of, uh, of cultural performances that really help bring the community together in a way that they wouldn't be brought together but for the arts. Um, one of the things that I struggle with is, as we've made cuts through K-12 education, uh, school districts have disproportionately uh, targeted those cuts to the arts in a way that they wouldn't for other extracurricular activities. Um, I was never musical, um, so I, I did not take advantage of, of music training. I played a few sports. 
uh, they wouldn't cut sports the way they cut the arts. And there are huge numbers of students that the arts are the only reason that they come back to school every day. There is the ability to stimulate certain sectors of the brain that stimulate language centers and math and science comprehension uh, that the arts are really fundamentally important for. And so um, I take issue with a lot of the decisions that we've made. Um, and I appreciate you raising the question uh, because we've got a lot of work to do there. My name is Chris Kalanon. I'm a college student here at Cal State Los Angeles. And I know that you just said that the prison system is receiving more funding than the college system here in California. And I was wondering, Mr. Speaker, what are your plans for the college system of California, the yeah. CSU systems specifically? I mean, it's what makes California such a great state, is the cheap education that we have here. It, it, it is. And um, actually, I, I talked about this the day that I got sworn in. It was one of the things that I integrated into my message. The thing about being speaker is in addition to running the assembly, uh, you're a regent of the University of California system and a trustee of the CSU system. Uh, two responsibilities that I take uh, very seriously because as a, as a product of the UC system, uh, there are challenges that we talked about 20 years ago when I was an undergrad that still haven't been addressed in many, any meaningful way. And the pattern of increases of fees have gotten so steep that we are turning our back on the master plan of higher education, which guaranteed universal access uh, to public post-secondary education in California. It's horrible in terms of the direct impacts on the students who are either laden with more debt or who are kept out because we're uh, reducing the number of students, but it is horrific for the future of the state as we are undermining our own ability to create the highly skilled, highly ed educated workforce of the future. The solution has to be that education in particular has got to be a place where we leverage for greater revenues. And so there's a bill by my colleague, Mr. Tirico, which looks at oil excise tax. We're the only state in the country that produces oil that doesn't have an excise tax on it. And he wants to take the money from the oil excise tax and direct it to CSU and UC. I think it's a great start. Um, I think as we fight through the budget this year, we've got to not only talk about cuts, we've got to talk about revenues that make sense in terms of long-term economic development for the state, and education is one of those key places. My name is Alex Castillo, and I'm also a student at the California State University of Los Angeles. And my question is, how likely is that the governor will give the $305 million you promised for higher education, and are you in support of it? I'm generally in support of giving the money. It has to fit into an overall budget. Um, I'm not in favor of giving that and then throwing more people on the streets on Skid Row. I mean, you know, so it has, to, it has to fit in the context of a budget, so I don't want to overstate uh, my position, but I'm generally uh, in favor of it. Um, I would say that if the governor made a promise, you've got about a 20% chance that he'll keep it. <laughs> <laughs> You know me from another industry, housing, but I want to ask you something uh, on the healthcare related. Uh, something that I've been very involved in called telemedicine, uh, which is probably, I believe, about 65% of the answer of our healthcare, uh, healthcare problem is the delivery of, of healthcare. And it would, it would cut the cost considerably if it was done right. There were hundreds of millions of dollars done by previous legislators that were put out there for telemedicine. 
and there were never any business plans done. We are starting to get ready to do, put some more money out there for it. So I would hope that yourself and the other legislators, that as bills and things are passed, we start requiring business plans behind them because that is the way these things will become sustainable, not just the health care, many of the things, and we'll stop wasting money. But as people ask for the funding, make sure there's a business plan behind it. Um, Arnie Corlin. I assume the question is, don't you agree? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Hi, Mr. Speaker. My, my name is Jesus Andrade, and I work for the National Council of La Raza here in Los Angeles as a field and campaign organizer. And um, I'm impressed by your knowledge of all the, you know, everything that we've been asked. You, you know, it seems like you're well-versed on the issues. But my question is just more of a, spe not specific, but general for you as a person, as a leader. Like, what, what is your vision for California as a state, as an as a economic engine, as a cultural place? Um, you know, there's enough policy questions, but I just want to know what, what is your vision for the next 10, 20, 50 years, et cetera? Um, you know, let's be clear that the role of a speaker is different than the role of an executive. I don't get to set the policy agenda uh, broadly. I get, to, I get to control how we move the policy discussion uh, through the process. Um, I've identified three areas of priority for us as a legislature. The one is focused approach on job creation. The second is a more transparent, humane, and rational budgeting process. And if I may just for one second talk about that because I think it underpins the discussion about what we do with whatever resources that we have. Over the last five years, the budget has been negotiated behind closed doors by five people the governor, and the Democratic and Republican legislative leaders in each house. Five people. There are 121 le 120 legislators. Five people have negotiated the budget. It's That's never what we what call was the big five. The big five. Yeah. Now I'm now one of the big five. So what's the first thing I said as a member of the big five? We're not going to meet. We're not going to do negotiations behind closed doors with five people. I've sent the budget process back to what was intended and anticipated in our Constitution, the subcommittees and the committees, where there's open debate about the proposals where people can engage in the process. Then I wanted to make those deliberations more transparent. So I've put every budget hearing available on cable access television, because that's all we control, and on the web. Every budget hearing we're going to have will be webcast, and already has been uh, since I took over. Where, where can then, you find that? Where can you find that? Is it ASM.dc.gov. Uh, ASM uh, then I said it's not enough to do this in the Capitol. So I have unveiled a plan of at least six regional budget discussions around the state. The first one was last Friday in Palm, in Palm Springs. The second one was the one I conducted last Saturday in Fresno. The third one was yesterday in the outskirts of Sacramento. The fourth one was today in Orange County uh, in Garden Grove. And in this process, we talk through all the items of the budget, and then we get everybody in the room or everybody watching online to engage in a simulated discussion about the budget, where in areas of funding and in areas of cuts, they're given five options in each different subject area. If they're in person, they've got a clicker, they get to vote and express what their priority was in terms of the five options in the area. If they're doing it online, they get to do it right away on their computer. 
All of this is to do a couple of things. One, inform us about broadly how people prioritize different sets of options. Because if I just asked you, do you think we should cut education? The answer is no. Do you think we should cut social services? The answer is probably no. If I just give you the questions out of any context, we don't get any real understanding of where people's comparative values uh, play out. We have to talk about these in a way that actually get us to a budget that works. And so we're doing these, we've done uh, now four, we'll do at least two more, uh, but they are a way for us to go out. And I mean, I gotta tell you, when I went to Fresno, they never thought they were gonna see the Speaker of the Assembly, the Speaker Pro Tem, and another legislator sitting in the front of the room for two hours answering any question people had about any element of the budget before they voted to express uh, their, their priorities. This isn't gonna solve the problem, but I think having transparency helps pull down the veil of distrust uh, that people have about what are very, very difficult choices that we're trying to make. Um, and so that's a second part of my vision, having a government system that is more transparent and more inclusive. And then the third is making sure that we have rational discussions about long-term reforms. Um, none of these are sexy ideas. These aren't the kinds of ideas that when you go out and tell people this is what I'm gonna campaign on, that excites a whole lot of people. Maybe that's why I had such low turnout. Um, <laughs> but, but, but they actually make a difference in how and if government can work. Now I believe government can be a force for good or for bad. In my youth, I saw it be a force for bad in several instances, but I've also seen it be a force for good. And I think we have to give people a sense of ownership and faith that collectively we can make our government work. And if this transparency helps us along in that direction, then I'll consider that a success. Hi, I'm uh, Matt Dickerson, and I was wondering uh, what your thoughts were on an idea of a constitutional convention or some major constitutional divisions to handle some of the big structural problems you've talked about tonight. Sure. Thanks. Um, let's be clear. There were a couple of different pathways to address this earlier in the year. There was the effort to take us to a constitutional convention. There was the California reform proposals that we're now moving through as legislative efforts. Um, I was against a constitutional convention, consistently. I uh, have always been against a constitutional convention um, because of this. Once you have a constitutional convention, you have a finite group of people who get to now make these decisions that will be put before the voters uh, as a package around constitutional changes that we know very little about, one. Two, we have no way to focus their effort. They can talk about whatever issue they want. And I think that too often, when we get folks involved in discussions, uh, and thankfully this hasn't been one of those discussions, but too often people just want to talk about the hotbed issue, whether it's gay marriage, what, uh, what we do around abortion, what we do about immigration, social issues. Where we are in crisis is in the structural issues. California reform, uh, California forward focused on those structural issues, which I think should be our primary focus right now. There was another pathway though that I was also in favor of, and that was a constitutional revision commission. Because a constitutional revision commission, you could give it a charge that is limited to the structural issues that underpin government. The last time we had a constitutional convention, they did wonderful things like, for example, passing a constitutional change that prohibited Chinese from owning property in the state of California. That was one of the great products 
of our last Constitutional Convention. I don't think they'd make that same mistake again, but I do think that it lends itself to get into the hot button issues as opposed to the structural issues. I'm working really hard to get the California forward proposals before the voters. If they're passed, great. If they're rejected, then maybe we have to go back to another conversation about a constitutional revision commission focused just on the structural issues. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs>